0: Welcome to Get Real, a podcast hosted by the National Animal Interest Alliance, through which we'll have deeply honest conversations about animal research, so we can learn together and make compassionate choices about our medical future together. Welcome to Episode 11 of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real. And Today, we're going to talk about Alzheimer's disease, what we know and what we still need to know in order to treat, stop, and prevent it. I lost my grandmother to Alzheimer's disease, and she died with me here in my house as I stroked her, reinforcing the deep connection between us that may have left her mind, but never actually left her. The peace in that knowing by her was so visible and pure when she left us. And I'll always be grateful for that final moment of clarity with her. I'm sure that many of you listening have had similar experiences with loved ones afflicted by this torturous and fatal disorder. And the sad truth is that many more of you will. Because until researchers can understand the deep pathological mechanisms that drive Alzheimer's disease, our loved ones will continue to vanish before our eyes along with so many of the memorable moments that once defined us as families. Dr. Agnes LaCruz at the University of Massachusetts Amherst has developed a uniquely powerful model for understanding the complex biological mechanisms that cause Alzheimer's disease. And her studies are already providing us with important clues, bringing hope to us and everyone we love but her groundbreaking work is being attacked, not celebrated. In fact, she is being attacked personally with propaganda deliberately crafted to hurt her and her family and you and your family. Joining us today to break down the actual facts for us is a research colleague of Dr. LaCruz who's directly familiar with her work and an expert in her own right on studies related to brain changes and aging, particularly in women. Thank you for joining us today on Get Real. Um, As you know, PETA has organized a fairly brutal campaign against Dr. Agnes LaCruz at UMass Amherst for her research with marmosets that are designed to help us understand Alzheimer's disease. You are an expert in how sex hormones, especially estrogen, impact neural circuitry and behavior, both very strong components of Alzheimer's disease and our ability to understand really what's happening in this disease in an effort to treat or prevent it. And in addition to that, I think what's so fascinating is that you've personally worked with Dr. LaCruz at certain points in your career. And so you have both a, a scientific perspective on all of this, in addition to some personal knowledge about how Dr. LaCruz actually feels about her animals. And I think that all of that is central to discussing this campaign and and what's true and what isn't. And so I'd like to frame our discussion around one of PETA's most recent posts about uh, Dr. LaCruz's work. And our listeners will probably remember that we did a similar exercise in uh, a previous episode called Roadmap to Mental Health about Dr. Elizabeth Murray's important work uh, with monkeys. And we learned very clearly in that episode that we weren't, in fact, getting the full truth from PETA. And here we are again uh, talking about some work that appears to be extremely critical and important for the public to have the full scope of facts about. And I don't think that's happening. And so what I'd really like to do is I I picked an article and uh, I'd like to take some of the information from the article as expressed by PETA and maybe have you address that, you know, given your expertise in this area. Does that sound like a good plan to
1: you? I think it's a great plan. I think it's important that we understand the true motivations behind these attacks and to understand from a women's health perspective exactly how important Dr. LaCruz's work is.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree completely. And it is very concerning, which is why I think this particular episode is so important. So the post I'm going to read from is a recent PETA post, um, and the title of it is, UMass uses hand warmers on marmosets to mimic menopause. This isn't science. And the first paragraph says, uh, quote, You'd expect a university to be a place of higher learning and innovation, yet small, delicate marmoset monkeys are tormented and killed in a University of Massachusetts at Amherst laboratory as part of an absurd attempt to study age-related changes in human cognition associated with menopause, which marmosets don't even experience. So what do you think? (laughs) About what's claimed here, I mean, particularly this part about how this approach is absurd. What are your comments related to that?
1: So I think that this is a a statement from individuals who don't quite understand scientific rigor and the importance of having animal models that, as closely as we can, mimic human physiology. It's true that marmosets do not necessarily experience the same type of menopause that women do, but neither do other animal models such as rodents. And the reason why we use the marmosets is because they are more closely associated to our physiology as humans, unlike the the rodents. And in particular, when we think about cognition, the marmosets have a similar brain structure that allows them to complete cognitive tasks that rodents cannot do. So if we are interested in understanding how menopausal symptoms, such as the decline in cognition, the increase in mood disorders, the disruptions of sleep, and how hot flashes contribute to this. If we are to understand how these impact women's health and women's overall well-being, we need to have an animal model that has a physiology as closely associated with women as possible.
0: Yeah, and that's important, right? I mean, because what we do know is that there are differences with respect to the prevalence and the experience that men and women have when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, right? And, and there is some reason to believe that the experiences women undergo, you know, while they're in the midst of menopause may have some value in predicting, you know, how they'll age and also some value with respect to their risk for Alzheimer's disease. Isn't that the case?
1: Absolutely. So right now in the U.S., over 6 million people are living with Alzheimer's disease. But what your audience might not realize is that out of that 6 million, two-thirds of these individuals are women. That is staggering when you think about it. I mean, that's that's not even a 50-50 bias. Two-thirds are women who suffer from Alzheimer's. And although we don't know the exact mechanisms, we have enough clinical evidence as well as evidence from animal models to suggest that estrogens and the loss of estrogens contribute significantly to the development of Alzheimer's disease. And so really, it's for this reason that it is so important for us to understand these these sex differences that underlie the female brain to the susceptibility of cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease.
0: Yeah, I don't think that people appreciate that. I don't think I appreciated that until I started digging into this a little bit more when this campaign started. Um, You know, I always try to understand where people are coming from it. And I think I missed that. You know, estrogen does play a significant role in this. And for that matter, then, um, you know, women with breast cancer are often treated with something to reduce or eliminate to the best of their ability the amount of estrogen they have, uh, depending on whether or not they have a, a breast cancer that is sensitive to estrogen levels levels, right? And so it seems like this work and understanding, you know, the impact of estrogen on cognition and aging and the risk of getting Alzheimer's disease is relevant to our breast cancer survivors as well.
1: Absolutely. I mean, of course, treating the cancer is a physician's primary concern in the survival of women with breast cancer. But I think what we fail to recognize, again, is just these quality of life issues. And so these therapies for estrogen-sensitive breast cancers, they essentially are blocking the ability of estrogen to have an action, both in the breast, but also in the brain. And when you block estrogen, estrogen's actions in the brain, these women who can be quite young at times, will suffer from menopausal symptoms. And this includes cognitive sort of a, a mental fog, really being unable to focus, um, severe hot flashes that can cause mood disorders, and also severe sleep disruption. And when you combine all of this together, these women who are on these anti-estrogens essentially really have a diminished quality of life. and yet, we don't really understand, again, the um, sort of mechanisms through which estrogen is mediating these physiological pathways that include temperature regulation that lead to hot flashes when estrogen's not there, or sleep disruption that, again, is clearly linked to changes in estrogen levels. And I should make another point getting back to whether it's overall well-being or even Alzheimer's disease. There are quite a number of significant clinical studies that have shown that insufficient sleep during midlife is the number one risk for Alzheimer's disease. And we already know that women are twice as likely as men to experience sleep disruption. So now you throw that on top of the fact that they're more susceptible to developing cognitive dysfunctions as well as Alzheimer's disease. And you really can begin to understand how women are at a significant disadvantage in the aging process when it comes to mental health.
0: Right. And it is clearly connected to estrogen and the lack thereof, which is fascinating. Now, you you mentioned previously, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, rodents and why marmosets were uh, more important for looking at various aspects of this connection, right? This connection between estrogen depletion and cognitive aging and Alzheimer's disease. And and certainly we, we always learn a lot from rodents. I think one of the things our listeners may not completely understand is that we work with different models to understand different aspects of the question at hand, right? And we we learn a lot from rodent models when it comes to uh, genetic connections to things and uh, the molecular underpinnings for health and disease. And that gives us a ton of information, right? But when you're going to start talking about cognition, right, thought and reason, and, and all of these things are thought of as behavioral, you know, people are primates and we have to use models then that are also primate that are more similar to how human beings behave if we're looking at things like thought, reason, right, cognition. This is what you had mentioned before with respect to the marmosets. And, you know, and there are there are things about them in particular that make them actually a very powerful model, not an absurd model at all. And maybe you can touch on some
1: of those things. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right that rodents are an invaluable tool, but there are limitations. And one of the main limitations is that they uh, really can't perform uh, complex cognitive tasks. So an example is there's an area of the brain that is called the prefrontal cortex. And the function of the prefrontal cortex is to essentially not only regulate memory, but also decision making. And the prefrontal cortex of marmosets will allow them to actually sort of reason, which we consider this complex cognitive task. And one of those reasonings is to basically understand reward choices. And so they're able to understand sort of like a puzzle. We're all familiar with puzzles, and and it sort of takes some sort of reasoning to actually be able to fit those pieces together. Well, just like that, for the marmosets, they're actually given these puzzles as tasks and they are able to reason through those puzzles. And if they do it correctly, then they get this really yummy reward that they absolutely love. And it continues to motivate them to perform these tasks that they actually think is quite fun. I mean, it it really truly is sort of like us humans either sitting down and working on a puzzle or doing a crossword puzzle. It's something very similar. Uh, You don't have that ability in rats, right? They can make decisions, but their decisions are much more simple. It's either, they press a lever or they don't press a lever. They can't necessarily put a piece of a puzzle together. So that's one major difference. Another difference is that marmosets are extremely social animals. And in Dr. LaCruz's lab, they house their marmosets together so that they can partake in this social climate that they absolutely need to thrive on. And and so she's very much aware of this. But in addition to that, because they are such a, a social animal, when we see disruptions in mood as a result of changes in hormones, we can measure that using social tasks another benefit to using marmosets as a model for women's health and menopause is the fact that they have a short lifespan. It's only about 10 years. And so we can actually, and this is what Dr. LaCruz's lab has so eloquently done, is she's able to follow their cognitive trajectory through these puzzle tasks that she gives them from a young age all the way up into what we would consider older age. And that you absolutely would never be able to do in a human because that would take following somebody for 60 to 90 years. And that's just impossible in terms of a a study that would allow for results within the lifetime of an investigator. But because the marmosets have such a short lifespan, we can follow these changes in physiology and cognitive aging within just a few short years.
0: So, you know, you know, the overarching theme in this article from Peta, or this post from Peta, is they want everybody to believe that this is completely absurd because marmosets are in no way at all related to anything of value when it comes to understanding what's happening in people, right? Especially women that are depleted of estrogen. And actually, I've already heard you talk about several ways by which marmosets are actually very similar to human beings, making them a very, very powerful model, right? You talked about their social nature, what was social creatures. You talked about their ability to express and demonstrate high Cognitive abilities, but then there are other, really more specific similarities. Uh, there are things that marmosets experience that are very similar to people. Maybe you can tell us about those.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is so true. And, you know, your listeners might be saying, well, you can still study you know, sociability in humans because humans are social and you can also study cognitive function in humans. And this is absolutely true. Everything that I've mentioned can also be studied with human subjects. But the one thing that we absolutely cannot do with human subjects in real time is actually look at their brains. So one of the major, major, major advantages of Marmar, is the fact that we can eventually look at the brain pathology and that in terms of Alzheimer's disease, as a marmoset ages, as it starts to reach the end of its life, it will actually start to develop very similar brain pathologies that resemble Alzheimer's disease. That is one of the most significant reasons that makes marmosets a really good model for studying aging.
0: And I think people miss this, right? They say, well, just study the brain of somebody who's passed away from Alzheimer's disease. And what they're failing to appreciate is it's too late then, right? I mean, so you you can see certainly the final devastation of the brain if you look at it histologically or even just on an image, but what you're not getting is the progress of the disease, right? This is the thing we're really trying to pin down because we're trying to slow it down, you know, or stop it or prevent it. And you have to be able to look at the brain as it's changing throughout that progress from healthy to fatally diseased in order to get at the underpinnings there, right? I don't think people see that. And you can't do that in people. I mean, and listeners are gonna say, well, why can't you see that in imaging?
1: Well, there's more in terms of the cellular mechanisms that are going on that we can get in with very advanced techniques for looking at the biochemical processes in neurons and and other brain-related cells that we can't do with imaging. Um, Imaging is, is an excellent technique. And in fact, we can also image the brains of marmosets. And that is another huge advantage because we can compare that to what we know to humans, but we can't get into the biochemistry or the chemical nature of these changes with the imaging.
0: Right, so the only way you'd be able to do that in people is to ask them to volunteer to give you sections of their brains as they progress through this disease. I mean,
1: am I right? Well, yes, brain biopsies, but that's not an option. Could you you imagine asking somebody if they would be willing to donate a a sample of their brain? No, that's not an option.
0: And then on top of that, even if they did, it's not connected to the rest of their body and actually functioning. And so what is it actually telling you except for getting some sense of the lay of the cellular land, right, so to speak?
1: Yes. And what is even more important is going back to the fact that Dr. LaCruz makes certain that she has rigorously designed experiments is that because of the different experimental groups, she will be able to know whether, for instance, let's say a cognitive decline is associated with sleep disruptions that were caused by hot flashes and look at then the brain morphology and the brain to see just how these symptoms that she is modeling impact the neuronal function. So we clearly cannot do that with humans. And that is so important if we are to understand and get to a point where we can come up with therapeutics, drug targets, if we can understand the mechanism, and if we can understand what changes in neurochemistry underlie these pathologies, we may be able to slow it down by developing therapies and newer drugs. And, and this is completely the
0: opposite of what PETA is trying to get people to see. And I think it's very dangerous. I think it's very unfair to the population of people struggling with this disease. You know, many of us, myself included, have had direct experiences with Alzheimer's disease, right, and family members. And it's And it's a devastating disorder. I would say it's very irresponsible to try and shift the public away from work like this. That is so powerful with regard to how it may impact our understanding of this devastating illness. So along those lines, then, we'll continue through the article, right? The next paragraph here is a newsflash. Marmosets don't get hot flashes. Marmosets don't go through menopause, so LaCruz decided to devise ways to simulate it in the monkeys she exploits. For instance, she surgically removes their ovaries and then uses hand warmers on the monkeys to mimic hot flashes. Yes, hand warmers, like the kind you put in your mittens in January. This is not science. What do you think about that?
1: Well, again, I have to say that the authors of the article clearly do not understand what it takes to develop a model and to have standardized methods. For women who are either close to menopause or in menopause, what happens is there are three main symptoms that really cause them to seek medical advice. And these three major symptoms include hot flashes, the inability to stay focused, so cognitive decline, as well as severe sleep disruption. We don't know how the loss of ovarian hormones, such as estrogen, we don't know how it really is affecting any of these symptoms. And so the idea. Idea for Dr. La model was to, at the very basic level, establish that these marmosets do, like women, go through a changes in, in their body temperature that can be affected by estrogen. And I think in what she has outlined in her studies, it is a quite elegant design where she basically uses animals that have been given estrogens or not, and she uses these innocuous hand warmers to change the ambient Temperature around these animals, and just simply look and see does the fact that the animals have estrogen or not affect their ability to respond to this slight increase in the temperature around them?
0: Right. And so, what we're back to then is the impact that estrogens have on the brain. You know, I'm sure our listeners are are thinking, well, but still, what does that have to do with Alzheimer's disease? And maybe you can just address that. There's a connection there, and the connection seems to be through estrogen which probably explains the disparity between you know men and women and the frequency with which women get it relative to men
1: I think it's important to understand that not one symptom can be sort of isolated and that it really comes down to a multitude of changes in the woman's body that ultimately can impact her mental health, as well as the development of mental pathologies, such as Alzheimer's disease. There is this hypothesis that when a woman's ovaries ceases to produce steroids such as estrogen, that the brain starts to go through a number of changes. And one of those changes is in the area that controls body temperature regulation. And we know there's this phenomenon that during the night, when women are in a particular sleep stage, when your core body temperature increases to a point that the sympathetic nervous system reacts and you start to sweat. And most oftentimes, the women are woken up by this so that their sleep is now disruptive. So the hot flashes will cause the sleep disruption. The sleep disruption will cause effects on cognitive function as well as mood disorders. So thermoregulation on its own may seem insignificant. But when you add to that the fact that thermoregulation is going to disrupt a significant behavior such as sleep, which is then going to disrupt a significant behavior such as cognition, you can begin to see how it's important to understand how estrogen is impacting each one of these, both alone as well as together.
0: So essentially then creating this model of menopause, a powerful model of menopause, is critical for us to be able to understand the rest of the progression uh, that occurs in human beings in aging, including the risk for Alzheimer's disease.
1: Absolutely. And it doesn't only impact the person suffering from this disease, but it also impacts their family because these individuals no longer can interact or recognize their loved ones. And there's a lot of pain for the caretakers as well and the children.
0: Yeah. Well, believe me, I know. I've been there. Um, so let me continue. I mean, so so they're going on now. This is still about how it's ridiculous um, because they don't naturally get menopause. Um, and so they say, quote, much as a window is no substitute for a door. Giving marmosets pretend hot flashes cannot hope to shed any light on a human condition that the animals themselves do not experience. So now we know that that's not true. We've discussed that. Um, And then they go on and they say, and the monkeys are kept in distressing and unnatural living conditions while being subjected to the traumatizing studies. If the COVID 19 vaccine has shown us anything, it's that skipping animal experiments can bring relief to humans quickly and efficiently. Just use the door and skip the window. Well, number one, That is flat out false. Studies with animals had everything to do with the fact that we have a COVID-19 vaccine. Um, decades of basic research about mRNA technologies and many other things related to vaccine all had their start in animals in much the same way that this basic research we're discussing is going to inform how we deal with Alzheimer's 20 or 30 years and maybe even fewer years than that moving forward, right? So animals were very much a part of this, and yet they're saying this thing that is Completely false. And that's concerning because if you're just a member of the general public reading these things, you have to start to consider that you may not be getting not just the full truth, but just truth at all from groups that have an agenda that may not really be good for you, that may not serve you and your needs, that may in fact put you in a dangerous position, right? And it's a very irresponsible and dangerous thing to say, especially when you have impressionable legislators out there listening to this and not asking people with any real expertise about these things and doing their homework and then drafting bills to decide the fate of the rest of humanity. We are the people who pay the price for this agenda, you know, this very dangerous game, right? But let's get back to what they say here, because now they make some very specific claims about the animals. And again, you've worked with Dr. LaCruz, you've worked with these animals, and you you know her personally, um, not just as a scientist, and you don't just know about her work, but you also know her as a human being, and you know how she feels about these animals. You've seen her in action, right? And what they say, and I'll I'll read it again. Um, They say, quote, and the monkeys are kept in distressing and unnatural living conditions while being subjected to the traumatizing studies. Maybe you can talk a little bit about um, the procedures that these animals actually undergo and their relevance for modeling menopause.
1: Well, I have to say that, first of all, that statement is completely and utterly false. Uh, Dr. LaCruz is the most compassionate and careful individual when it comes to the treatment of the animals. And it it just pains me that someone would write something like that about her. Um, She treats these animals with the utmost respect, And she understands the importance of their contribution to the science. In terms of the falsehoods of them living in um, horrid conditions, that is not true. So marmosets being the social animals that they are form pair bonds with other marmosets. And so they are actually co-housed with their partner. But in addition to that, all of the marmosets are housed in a room so that they can actually be social and interact through vocalization and eye contact and facial expressions with each other. Their enclosures are well-maintained. They are cleaned every day. They have numerous toys. They have hammocks as well as bedding nests. And um, when you visit these animals, you can tell that they are socially well-adjusted, curious animals that enjoy the company
0: of others. Right. I certainly, in my career in lab animal science, have seen many marmosets, and this is a common way for them to live and be housed. You know, and this is why the laboratory animal science community exists, um, because we have people who are highly trained in their husbandry and veterinary care and their behavioral needs. And, and when we work with researchers who clearly care about them, like Dr. LaCruz, you know, that's a big, big bonus, because we become partners then in uh, animal welfare in pursuit of really, really strong reproducible science. But, you know, PETA does make a lot of mention about the procedures, all these things that are happening to the animals. And maybe you can discuss, you know, what procedures these animals actually undergo to become these models for study.
1: So since we're talking about modeling menopause and looking at the effects of uh, ovarian steroids such as estrogen on brain function, Dr. LaCruz uses a very common technique called ovariectomy, which is the surgical procedure that removes the ovaries from the females. This is just like you would do to spay your dog. It's done by a veterinary team. It's done under anesthesia. And again, in order to be able to have interpretable results and rigorous science, it's important to standardize the hormones. And so ovariectomy is that way in which we're able to do that.
0: Right. And the other thing is that in lab animal, all of our animals have access to 24-7 veterinary care. Uh, I mean, I don't have that for my pets at home. <laughs> right, so. They mentioned this business and I've seen this in a couple of their posts, you know, where they, oh, they, they zip tie these animals into sleeves. And this sounds to me uh, like it has to do with uh, stabilizing the animals for an MRI. Is that what that's about?
1: Well, Dr. LaCruz has used MRI or magnetic resonance imaging, which again is just as any of us out there have ever had an MRI. You know, you have to be put into a machine that will image your brain. And what she has done, which is absolutely amazing, is that she's actually taught the marmosets to remain still. So she doesn't have to restrain her animals. And so it's unclear what they mean by zip tie. I've never seen her use anything like that because her animals are are trained with rewards to sit in the imager
0: okay they make mention of electrodes in the brain and telemeters and you know maybe you can clarify all of this for the public because these sound like scary words when you don't really know what they are
1: um, again this is a exaggeration of what the procedures are for these animals. Part of Dr. LaCruz's study is to look at the effects of estrogens on sleep. In order to do this, there needs to be some way of measuring the brain waves of these animals. Dr. LaCruz does not put electrodes into the brain. She places very, very thin wires underneath the skin on the surface of the skull, and These wires are connected to a device that is implanted in the animal and the animal lives with this device. It does not cause any significant detriment to their health. This small device, it's called a telemeter and it will transmit the brain waves that are being picked up by these very small thin wires that are placed on the surface of the skull to the computer. This is really quite a significant advance because these animals are completely free to roam around in their enclosures and interact with other marmosets. So this is a really ingenious way of being able to record the brain activity of these awake and freely moving animals without any really invasive technology.
0: Right. So in direct contrast to what these claims are meant to lead breeders to believe, right, that this is somehow some horrible thing that these animals are experiencing, doing this this way um, allows the animals to just kind of be themselves. I mean, there's there's no difference to that. They can't feel it. It's not impacting their ability to behave uh, normally in any way. And, uh, and I agree with you. I mean, I think it's a really beautiful way of getting real-time information, especially when you're talking about how things progress over time, right? Without impacting the animal's health or well-being. I mean, the animals can continue being their cute little social, very active, almost hyper sometimes selves.
1: That is absolutely right. And because it's not stressful to the animals, then Dr. LaCruz will get a better data set because it's truly measuring what she intended to measure.
0: That's right. She's she's getting information from an animal who is less likely to be stressed and that's the key, right? So at some point, um, they got a video of one of the uh, animals, one of the marmosets doing one of these behavioral tasks. And I remember when people started talking about this, I hadn't heard about it yet. And I said, well, you know, where is this video? Send it to me. And so I watched the video, you know, and as someone who has experience with marmosets, and I think that's the first thing, right? Most people don't. So when somebody tells them that an animal is experiencing something and they don't know enough about that animal because they don't live with animals like that, then they have a, tendency to believe it. Right. And I, and I think that's part of the manipulation here that is quite dangerous. Right. So as someone who knows marmosets, I watched the video, the text that accompanies the video, you know, leads you to believe that this animal is experiencing something awful. Right. And so if you ignore the text and you just look at the monkey, you know, what I saw was this very healthy looking, shiny, very alert eyed, you know, very responsive, cute marmoset, you know, just being its marmoset little self, right? With their little, you know, they have a little like these little movements, right? And they're just so cute. You can't even stand it, right? And then all of a sudden, he makes a little vocalization. You see his little, uh, he or she, I guess it's probably a she, makes a little vocalization and her little mouth opens. And, you know, marmosets do this all the time. I mean, to me, that is a healthy thing. That marmoset is vocalizing either to the researcher, who she seems to be fond of, or probably to another marmoset. And then I, you know, I dug around a little bit more and I found out that what Dr. LaCruz actually does is because they are so social and they can't stand to be isolated, she has them do these behavioral tasks amongst the other marmosets. So they're not really ever separated. Is that right?
1: That is absolutely right. These little guys and gals are never separated from their colony.
0: Thank you for helping me explain that to our listeners. Um, So let's go back to the article. I only want to talk about one more part of this because I think we've already heard plenty to know that it's uh, a bunch of nonsense frankly. Another sentence here is, you know, so uh, a quote, after caging, cutting into and experimenting on marmosets, La Cruz kills them and dissects their bodies. And I do think it's important for our listeners to understand why the animals are euthanized and what exactly Dr. La Cruz is trying to learn directly from their tissues. So maybe you can talk about that a little.
1: Yes, um, if we are to understand how changes in aging brain uh, lead to changes in behavior, the cognitive abilities, and the development of disease pathologies, we need to look at the chemistry in the brain. The only way to look at the chemistry in the brain is to euthanize the animals and I know that this is the most difficult part for Dr. LaCruz and her team. I think that if there was a way to look at the chemical aspects without it, I know that she would be the first in line to do that. But it's necessary to look at the brain tissue so that we can understand if these characteristic pathologies that we see in humans that have Alzheimer's disease. We need to know if the lack of estrogen or the presence of estrogen can slow down this progress in the development of these pathologies.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the implication in the article is that, you know, she just kills them and throws them away. And of course, that's not at all what's happening here. And these are very difficult moments for us. As someone who's experienced this many times, it hurts me a lot to see that somebody would be so insensitive To somebody like Dr. LaCruz, who clearly cares very much about these animals and grieves over the loss of them, I'm sure, as to her people, and also cares so much about the people you and I love, right? People who are, you know, really struggling with real disease here, and she's trying to help them. You know, when does it stop? Anyway, I just think it's so horrible, and I am so appreciative of you for filling us in, um, giving us the full scope of facts. So I appreciate your time so much. And b- before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you if you had any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners.
1: I would like to bring attention to the fact that women's health has always taken a backseat in terms of research, and women historically were excluded from studies. Even female animals, because it was too difficult to deal with, the hormonal profiles were excluded from basic research. And what has happened because of this is that treatments that have been generalized to the male physiology and then given to women are not necessarily the most advantageous or helpful. And so I just want your listeners to think about the fact that women's health is sort of like the... The final frontier in terms of medicine because we know so little in terms of how women's physiology is different from men's. And research such as this into menopause and the effects of the loss of ovarian hormones on cognitive function and ultimately Alzheimer's disease is of the utmost importance if we are to truly be able to treat women in terms of their specific physiology.
0: Yes, thank you. So in addition to everything else, um, this campaign by PETA demonstrates a pretty clear insensitivity to women's health issues.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you again so much for your time. I think our listeners have learned a lot, and I really appreciate you coming on today to make all those clarifications for us and to defend um, the honor of really a pioneer here in um, women's health studies, particularly as they result to aging and Alzheimer's disease. So a big thank you to Dr. Agnes LaCruz as well. Okay, look, it's time to get very real about all of this. This game that PETA, the White Coat Waste Project, and other extremist groups is playing with public health is a dangerous one. Most of us love animals, and we would all rather they weren't still necessary for biomedical progress. For now, though, they are. There is no technology in existence today that can teach us everything we still need to know about whole living organisms in order to fully understand health and disease. Not one. And anyone who tells you that we can learn all we need to know from computers, cell cultures, artificial intelligence, and organs on chips is lying to you. And they know it. Now, all of these technologies are valuable because they tell us something about what we need to know. But they can't tell us everything we truly need to know in order to understand and treat disease effectively. I'm sorry, but that's just the truth. If you want treatments and cures for yourself and your loved ones, then you must accept that research with animals is still necessary for you to have them, period. And attacking strong research and reputable researchers in this country will only drive it elsewhere, where we have no control over how animals are treated, how science is conducted, or how the treatments that are developed will be shared with us. We absolutely should continue to do all that we can to develop technologies that will bring us, as we say it get real, stronger science and faster cures with fewer animals. But we, and the legislators we support, need to start being realistic about what is truly possible and when, or we'll place everyone we love in grave danger. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and I'm glad you were able to join us today. I encourage you to visit our episode response page to learn more about Dr. LaCruz's important work as well as the Baseless PETA campaign against her. You'll find the link to this page in the lower right-hand corner of our website at getrealpodcast.info. Now, I hope you're enjoying Get Real. There's so much I still want to share with you, but seriously, I need your help please visit the support link on our webpage and make a small monthly donation to help keep us rolling. Your commitment to me will help me keep my commitment to you. Up next, does the betting we choose for our rodents really impact research outcomes? Come back next month for the raw truth on the next episode of Get Real. You can check for announcements by following us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll talk soon.